the word of the Lord from Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Peter's confession of the Messiah. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave his disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, it is a joy and a privilege to be with you this morning. Um, we as well, during our time of service at Antioch, we pray for the gospel mission to go forward. And so fittingly, I had us pray for sojourn this morning. So we're just, the prayers are going up for both congregations. I love it. Uh, the passage we're going to look at this morning is one of the most single discussed texts in all of the gospel of Matthew. It contains one of the most repeated phrases that you hear when Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, this phrase may have specific meaning for you. So when you hear upon this rock, you may immediately go back to this text and go, yeah, I've heard this before. For me, I have a different feeling and a different remembrance of this text. When I was a teenager, I grew up in northwest Tennessee. Realfoot Lake is the area. And, and there was this family that decided to open up this business, and they called it Upon This Rock. And what it was, it was a laser tag putt-putt place. Okay, and so we would go and we would spend hours there um, uh, playing laser tag and doing putt-putt. So when I hear Upon This Rock, I immediately had this visceral response of sweaty teenagers in a dark room playing laser tag. So maybe you think of this passage. I don't. I think of, of sweaty teenagers. But we're not going to focus on sweaty teenagers this morning. We're going to focus on this passage. Now, as a practice at, at Antioch, what we do is before we really dive into the text, we take a moment to quiet our hearts to ask the Spirit to take the scales from our eyes and to give us ears to hear. And so we take just a moment of silence. My spiritual director, a guy named Rusty, um, that I've been meeting with over the last several months, he sort of helped me in, in this practice. And so I do this every time I preach, right before we get in to the, to the Word. And so this morning, as we take a moment of silence, it, it may be a daunting thing for you. Silence is something that when we stop and we actually do it, so many thoughts can bombard. And if that happens to you this morning, I would just simply say, pray that the Spirit simply would give you ears to hear. So let's take just a moment before we get into the Word of God this morning.
Amen. Now, when you read through the book of Matthew, you constantly see the Pharisees and the Sadducees trying to take down Jesus and his disciples, trying to trip them up and to see how they can sort of enter into their life and say, hey, I told you so. You weren't perfect. You weren't who you say that you are. In verse 6 of chapter 16, Jesus even gives a warning to the disciples when he says, hey, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And when you think about it, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been the leaders of the church for a long time. So if you are associated with worshiping the one true God in any way, you went through the direction of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so now Jesus is shifting things. He's directing disciples away from these corrupt leaders. And instead, as we'll see today, he is showing them how he intends to build and establish his church. And if you read Matthew chapter 16, you see these two themes that keep coming out. And the one is confession, and then the second is following. And so he's saying that you have to confess that Jesus is the divine Christ in order to establish a church. And then the second thing is you have to follow him as the suffering servant. And so this morning, we're just going to deal with that first tenet, if you will, the confession of Peter. Now, as I mentioned, this is one of the most discussed texts in all of Matthew, and it would and could take us several weeks to really break down everything that's in this simple little section of verses. We're not going to do that this morning. There are a couple phrases and a couple things I really want to point out and to bring to us. So if you have questions about this text, or if I don't dive into a section that maybe you have uh, concerns or questions about, I'm going to put you off to Isaiah and the elders here, and they'll be able to pick up my slack, okay? All right. Let's look at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What an interesting question here asked by Jesus. You know, this word people, we could look at it in several different ways. We could say maybe uh, the world, if you will. Who does the world say that I am? Or maybe you could even think of it this way. Who are those outside the church? Who are those outside that are not following me? Who do they say that I am? But that's not exactly how Jesus asked that question, is it? Jesus said, who do people say the Son of Man is? So in that asking of the question, that simple way, he is affirming that he is the Christ. He is placing himself in the position as the Christ. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And apparently there are several options. Look at verse 14. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You don't have to turn there, but if you look back into Matthew chapter 14, what you see is that Herod the Tetrarch is saying that Jesus is John the Baptist come back to life, being raised from the dead. And if you look at that and see why he's saying that, it's because he had John the Baptist killed. And he is saying, oh, look, to not feel as guilty about that anymore, Jesus is simply John the Baptist returned. And if you look at that story, you see that Herod had his head 
John the Baptist's head brought on a platter out to the party at the request of his wife and his daughter-in-law. And so, others have said he's Elijah. Now, I can go with this one a little bit. I understand this a little bit. If you remember the story of Elijah, he was a prophet that called fire down from heaven. Not only did he call uh, fire down from heaven, he called it down onto a wet altar. And so we see this massive miracle happening in the hands of Elijah. But what about Elijah is different than, than all people? Elijah didn't die, remember? He was called up into a chariot of fire. So it makes sense to me that they're like, oh, Elijah didn't die, so this must be Elijah again. Others again say he's Jeremiah, one of the prophets. I think needless to say, what we need to understand is their recognition that Jesus is not just a regular guy. At the least, he's even confirmed as a prophet. But then things get real. Now things shift. It's not who do they out there say that I am. Look at the question he asked in verse 15. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? This is the most vital question that every single person from the beginning of time will answer. Who do you say that I am? See, every single person will answer this question. They will either answer it here on earth or they will answer it at the final judgment. When they are standing before Jesus, this is why scripture tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, because at some point, every single person will be faced with this question. Who do you say the Son of Man is? And what is Peter's response? Simon Peter answered in verse 16, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, I want us to understand the context of this question and as what is happening as it's being asked. This is not an easy yes for Peter to give. Because at this time, we have said and know that the religious rulers are trying to take down Jesus. Those who would assume that they would be aligned with him because they are the leaders of the church at this time. They're the ones coming against him. We look at what's happening with the Roman government and the Jewish people being terrorized and them help, hoping and wanting a Savior and a Messiah to come in and overthrow that power. This is not an easy yes for Peter. Again, as we look forward to the story, we know that he struggles with this again when he eventually denies Jesus I say all that because I want us to see that there would be an easier option if, if Peter just walked and went with the culture. But instead, he made his profession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
a theologian that I study, his name is, is Frederick Bruner. I, I love how he put his perspective on this. He said, see, Peter did not say, for example, I think you are the Christ. As if the conviction is simply Peter's opinion or merely subjective. Nor did Peter say, for us, you are the Christ. I love this. As though this is simply a Christian opinion so that it might be relative for other people there may be other Christ or saviors no Peter quite boldly says you are the Christ and as Bruner says it is where this confession is gladly believed with this heart and so confessed with the mouth that a church arises and lives so look at verse 17. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now we're going to spend most of our time here in verse 17 and then in verse 18. But here's what I want us to see, that Jesus, in this very simple statement, lays out the foundation of the gospel. When he says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. God is the one who saves. We cannot save ourselves. We, we cannot in our own ability. It is him and him alone that saves. It is not our decision to say that Jesus is the Christ. We cannot in our own intellect discover that Jesus is the Christ. Some have said, well, Jesus has done the work. Now it's up to us to believe it. That doesn't fit here. Peter is the most trusted disciple and he came to his understanding that Jesus is the Christ by God and God alone. It is God and God alone that reveals to us that Jesus is the Christ. And then through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it is then and only then that we can say, Jesus is Lord. It is God who removes the scales from our eyes. It is God who softens our hardened heart and transforms it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Once that transformation has taken place, then we can repent, confess, and believe. And see, we must understand this, that our faith in Christ, as told to us right here in this passage, is a gift from God. Now, we know because of John 3.16, that Jesus himself was a gift from God to us. But we must also see and understand that even the faith to believe in Christ is a gift from God as well. I'll have these on the screen, but if you want to, you can look over in the first chapter of John. And I love his explanation of this in verses 10 through 13. John 1, 10 through 13, he said, He, being Jesus, was in the world, and the world was created through him, 
yet the world did not recognize him. I love that Trinitarian glimpse right there, that Jesus is from the foundation of the world, part of creation. But look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's the context that Peter is having right now in this discussion with Jesus. And then verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. And look, 13, who were born, what? Not out of natural descent or not out of the will of the flesh or the will of man. No, but of God. Our faith to believe is a gift from God. We could go all through the scriptures and see this, but you may know this passage well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where Paul says, you are saved by grace through faith. And why? This is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Not from works. Why? Because we know that if we could do it ourselves, what would we do? We would boast. We would boast. And so it is a gift of God. When we truly understand that not only is Jesus a gift from God, but that our faith to believe that he is the Christ is a gift from God, our worship completely changes. Our reverence of the king completely changes when we fully realize that our faith to believe in Jesus, our Savior, is a gift from the Father. That is the good news of the gospel. Now, we could be done, right? <laughs> we could just go home, be happy, and know that God has given us this gift. But there's more. Let's look back at verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, there are many different views and many different interpretations and many different understandings of what Jesus is meaning here when he told Peter upon this rock he will build his church. And, and we could. We could spend hours walking through all of those uh, some say he's giving Peter a special position. Some say he's affirming Peter's confession. Again, there are implications of both of those views. But rather than go down that particular road today, here's where I want us to put our focus and our, our attention on what Jesus said he would do. Jesus said, I will build my church. There is such hope for us in that statement, that Jesus will build his church. That should all cause all of us in this room to just take a deep sigh of relief and a deep breath that Jesus is the one who builds his church. It is not based on the programs that we have or the programs that we don't have. It is not based on the type of outreach that we do or the type of outreach that we don't do. This one's good. We don't have to look at other churches and see how they're growing and then try to mimic them in order for us to grow. 
We do not and we cannot build his church. Jesus builds his church. Now, I told us to take a sigh of relief. But that doesn't mean that we can go, man, I don't have to go to the block party anymore. Yes. Or I don't have to serve in kids anymore. Do you know how many kids are back there that you have to try to wrangle? If Jesus is going to build his church, it doesn't matter how many kids ministry things we have. Now, can I caveat this? I want to fully say Isaiah and I have talked about nothing prior to this. So if I'm hitting something, it's the spirit, okay? He's not feeding me for anything. So I promise that I can say he gave me nothing before I got here today. But isn't that the response that we will have? Ah, if Jesus is going to build his church, then I can just sort of take back. But that's not how we should respond at all. If you look at the book of Matthew, there are two miracles that have happened prior to this. Both of them are miraculous feedings. We see the feeding of 5,000 plus women and children, which probably meant there were probably twenty to 25,000. And then you see the feeding of the 4,000. Again, not counting women and children, so you're talking 15, 20,000 people. If you go back and study those two miracles, and you see how Jesus performs those miracles, he does not give the food to the hungry directly to the hungry. Go back and read it. He gives the food to the disciples, and then they disperse to the people. In both of those miracles, he says, I am using these 12, put in whatever adjective, description you want of those guys, and I'm letting them do the work of the ministry. He could have easily said, hey, all of you who are hungry, sit down and food begun to appear in front of them. He could have done that. He's Jesus. But that's not what he chose to do. He said, I'm going to give the food to the disciples, and then the disciples are going to distribute the food to the hungry. In his providence, Jesus has called us as his disciples to be the ones that distribute his gifts. In his providence, he saw fit that you and I would be the ones to distribute the gospel. And he gives it to us and we give it out. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. But we still labor. The comfort in knowing that Christ builds his church should cause us to press in to the work of the ministry even more. Because listen, if Christ builds his church, there is no hopeless cause. There is no church member too far stuck in tradition that can't be brought out if Christ builds his church. There is no neighborhood that is too far gone if Christ builds his church. There is not one addict that can't be made sober if Christ builds his church. There is not one son or daughter or relationship too far gone that can't be mended if Christ builds his church. Listen, there is not one section of this city that we can give up on and deem as unreachable if Christ builds his church. 
Chattanooga and Hill City is ripe for the harvest if Christ builds his church. Because the Spirit of God is going before us, readying the hearts and the lives of our neighbors and the nations if Christ builds his church. So if Christ builds his church, we must be ready to receive his church. We must be ready to welcome them in, no matter if they look different than you and I do. No matter if they speak a different language than you or I do. No matter if they think differently than we do. But in order to do this, we as Peter must confess without wavering that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. MacArthur put it this way. He said, it's not faithful believers who build Christ's church, but Christ who builds his church through faithful believers. And wherever his people are committed to his kingdom and his righteousness, the Lord builds his church And if believers in one place become cold or disobedient, Christ does not stop building, simply starts the building somewhere else. His church is always under construction. Verse 18 ends with this phrase, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I'll be honest, I've used this verse in a way that says that Satan's attempts to take out the church will not overpower it or not take it down. And and I don't necessarily think that that's wrong, but I don't think that that's what he's talking about here. Think about it this way. If you are entering into battle, would you consider the gate, the gate itself, a physical gate, an offensive weapon or a defensive weapon? See, it's more of a defensive weapon, right? A gate is made to either keep something in or keep something out. So it's not necessarily something we would use as an offensive attack. It would have been understood by Peter and those hearing this in this day that the phrase, the gates of Hades, represented death. The gates of Hades, knowing to be what kept dead people in, And so what Jesus is saying here to Peter, not even death can hold back those who believe. Or in other words, death is not the end for those who believe. Because even the gates of death cannot hold those who have faith in Christ. He ends with verse 19 and 20. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And then he gave his disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Again, there are many different views and many different interpretations of what this phrase and what these verses mean. But I want to clearly say that these verses are not about any power that we hold to cause or not cause something to happen. 
What I believe Jesus is saying here when he talks about the keys of the kingdom, I believe he's saying and describing here the power of the gospel that we as believers hold as it's going forward after he leaves. Hang with me. Think about it this way. He says he gives them the keys to the kingdom. What does a key do? A key unlocks something. A key gets you in to something. So how does one enter into heaven? Through the power of the gospel. When the gospel is preached and the gospel is heard, one of two things happen. Either hearts are hardened, or you could say bound, or hearts are freed, or you could say loosed. So what I believe Jesus is saying here to the disciples and to Peter, this this is not power to manifest whatever you want to happen here on earth. What I think these verses do, they in no way usurp the sovereign rule of, of our king. What they are meant to encourage us is to be faithful to share the gospel, the keys of the kingdom, with the world. And then we get to watch the power of the gospel go forth to either loose hearts and make them free or to bind hearts and continue to harden them. We get to watch the power of the gospel. And Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm giving the keys of the kingdom to you. I'm giving you the gospel message and then you are then going to go forth. And whatever happens here on earth, if someone hears and their heart is loose and free, so shall it be in heaven. But if they hear the gospel and their hearts are are hardened and they remain bound, so shall it be in heaven. I think for us as a church, this is a timely word because we have to believe, one, do we, be, do, do we believe that Jesus is building his church? And then are we going to faithfully continue to follow his leading for us to continue on? Are we going to trust in his provision and his building or our building and our direction? There must be faithful confession that Jesus is the Messiah. And then we trust that as we are committed to working and building alongside him in his kingdom, that he in his righteousness will truly build the church. But none of that matters if we don't go back to the very beginning and ask ourselves, who do you say that Jesus is? If we don't answer that question first, if we don't deal with that understanding first, all of the building of the church that we want to be a part of is good and right, but we must get ourselves right with the king who is giving us the kingdom and ask all of us, ask the question to ourselves, who do I say? that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Maybe you've been 
asked that question before. Maybe you've never been asked that question before. Maybe you've been around the things of Jesus, and you've been adjacent to them. You've been, again, working and, and helping in the church, and those things are right and good. But have we ever stopped to say, yeah, but who do I say that he is? Who do I say the Son of Man is? Is he just an add-on to your life because it's socially acceptable? Is he just something we wear like the Pharisees on the outside, yet on the inside our heart has never been changed? This morning, would we take a moment and all of us simply ask ourselves the question, who do I say the Son of Man is? Let's take just a moment to do that. Father, this morning we come before you. Many of us who have, for a long time, been doing the faithful work of the ministry. And Father, I'm thankful for the hands and feet that you have brought here to Sojourn Community Church. But God, may we not get to a place where we think that that work of our hands is what saves us. May we never get to a place where we can boast in anything that we have done without truly answering the question, who do I say the Son of Man is? Father, by the power of your Spirit, would you convict us this morning? If there are those who have not answered that question, God, would you soften their hearts? Would you bring the scales from their eyes so they can see that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? And not only would you reveal that to them, would you give them the boldness to confess and to repent and to believe that you are Lord? Father, for those in the room who have answered that question and, and truly know your saving touch and your saving power, would we truly believe that you are building your church and that it's not up to us? It's not about us? Would you convict us where we put our faith and our stake in what we're doing versus in what you're doing? And 
But God, because of the realization that you are building your church, would you give us the power to press in even more? The strength to endure. The desire to see this city come to know who you are so they too can answer, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Father, I'm grateful for your sovereign hand all laced through this text and how you love us and care for us and how you are the one that is changing hearts and readying hearts to receive. Would we believe that enough that we would go and share the keys of the kingdom with our neighbors, with this city and the nations? Would that all be done for your glory and your glory alone? In Jesus' name, amen.